Greeting to each of you in Jesus' name. It's a blessing. It's a privilege to be here with each of you. You know, there's a lot of people in our world that wish they could meet just like we're meeting today, and they can't. So what a privilege it is to meet together. If I told you that I could give you a guaranteed formula for successful Christian living, would you be interested in hearing what I had to say? Well, maybe possibly we should go home because I can't do that. But brothers and sisters, I know a place that we can go for just such a formula. I would invite you to Psalm chapter 15 this morning. The title, Ten Steps to Moral Integrity. Now usually I have about three points in my sermon. This morning I have ten. So we'll probably get done in an hour and a half or less. Probably less. Psalm chapter 15 starts with two questions. The inner part, the middle part of the passage is the, the answer to those questions. And then at the end of Psalm 15, there's God's promise. Let's read. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? And who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Here's the answer. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile man is contemned. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. That's God's promise. It's interesting to think about the questions here at the start of the passage. It says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hills? We think about tabernacle as we think about the holy hill. They are terms that would indicate the dwelling place of God. And it seems that King David, he questions not so much who it is that can inhabit this sanctuary, but rather... What kind of person is eligible to live with and commune with God? Is that your desire this morning? Is it your desire to live with and commune with God? I'd like to look at Psalm 24, verses 3. Greeting to each of you in Jesus' name. It's a blessing, it's a privilege to be here with each of you. You know, there's a lot of people in our world that wish they could meet just like we're meeting today, and they can't. So what a privilege it is to meet together. If I told you that I could give you a guaranteed formula for successful Christian living, would you be interested in hearing what I had to say? Well, maybe possibly we should go home because I can't do that. But brothers and sisters, I know a place that we can go for just such a formula. I would invite you to Psalm chapter 15 this morning. The title, Ten Steps to Moral Integrity. Now usually I have about 
three points in my sermon. This morning I have ten. So we'll probably get done in an hour and a half or less. Probably less. Psalm chapter 15 starts with two questions. The inner part, the middle part of the passage is the, the answer to those questions. And then at the end of Psalm 15, there's God's promise. Let's read. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? And who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Here's the answer. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile man is contemned. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. That's God's promise. It's interesting to think about the questions here at the start of the passage. It says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hills? We think about tabernacle as we think about the holy hill. They are terms that would indicate the dwelling place of God. And it seems that King David, he questions not so much who it is that can inhabit this sanctuary, but rather what kind of person is eligible to live with and commune with God. Is that your desire this morning? Is it your desire to live with and commune with God? I'd like to look at Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? Questions again. Answers again, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. That's my understanding that in Jerusalem in the Old Testament, it was necessary for the pilgrims, they were expected to go through ceremonial cleansing before they worshipped at the temple. Have you worshipped? Have you? Have you been ceremonially ceremonially cleansed this morning. Sal and I were privileged about three years ago to be at the Temple Mount. And they had a place there where, where there was jugs or pitchers of water and it was expected of the pilgrims to, to be ceremonially cleansed before they worshipped. And brothers and sisters, it's just as important that you and I are cleansed before we worship it's my desire that we worship the Lord this morning. Where is it that God dwells? I'm blessed as I think about where it is that God dwells. I invite you to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. There's three places that the, the Father dwells. And let's read where those three places are. Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one, where does he inhabit? He inhabits eternity. Number one, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. So he dwells in eternity. 
He dwells in heaven. And where else is it that he dwells? I dwell in the high and holy place, and with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Almighty God, he indwells eternity. He indwells heaven. And he indwells within your heart and my heart as we are cleansed. Is that awesome to think? The eternal God, the wonderful God, in, he desires to indwell your heart and my heart. And he does as we're cleansed. And I'm blessed by that this morning. I'd like to think this morning as we think of those ten points of you know, where is it that God dwells and what is it? This is God's guaranteed formula for successful living that we have here this morning. I believe in my heart that every one of you, if I would ask for a raise of hands, how many of you want to live a righteous, a holy life? I believe every hand would go up. And brothers and sisters, we have questions. The Bible has answers. In 4, Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Questions again. Answers again. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. That's my understanding that in Jerusalem in the Old Testament, it was necessary for the pilgrims, they were expected to go through ceremonial cleansing before they worshipped at the temple. Have you worshipped? Have you have you been ceremonially, ceremonially cleansed this morning? Sal and I were privileged about three years ago to be at the Temple Mount. And they had a place there where, where there was jugs or pitchers of water and it was expected of the pilgrims to, to be ceremonially cleansed before they worshipped. And brothers and sisters... It's just as important that you and I are cleansed before we worship. It's my desire that we worship the Lord this morning. Where is it that God dwells? I'm blessed as I think about where it is that God dwells. I invite you to Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15. There's three places that the, the Father dwells. And let's read where those three places are. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one, where does he inhabit? He inhabits eternity. Number one, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. So he dwells in eternity. He dwells in heaven. And where else is it that he dwells? I dwell in the high and holy place, and with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Almighty God, he indwells eternity. He indwells heaven. And he indwells within your heart and my heart as we are cleansed. Is that awesome to think? The eternal God, the wonderful God, in, he desires to indwell your heart and my heart. And he does as we're cleansed. And I'm blessed by that this morning. I'd like to think this morning as we think of those ten points of, you know, where is it that God dwells and what is it? This is God's guaranteed formula for successful living that we have here this morning. 
I believe in my heart that every one of you, if I would ask for a raise of hands, how many of you want to live a righteous, a holy life? I believe every hand would go up. And brothers and sisters, we have questions. The Bible has answers. And if you want to live a successful life, it's outlined right here how you do, how you do it. The first one I'd like to consider, he whose walk is blameless. To be blameless does not necessarily mean to be sinless or to be perfect. I don't think there's probably a sinless person here or a perfect person. We all have sinned. 1 John 1, 8, I should be able to quote this, but just make sure I get it right. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once again, to be blameless does not mean that we're perfect. It does not mean that we are sinless. But the question is, are you, am I, are we up to date? It kind of reminds me of the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. I'm not, not going to turn to that. But if you remember in that account, Jesus was teaching the disciples and, and people there in the temple. And I'm amazed of how Jesus is, is teaching. And all of a sudden there's this, this fracas and the doors blast open. And they, the religious leaders, they drag in this woman taken in adultery. And they come to Jesus and they said, In the law, Moses said that we should stone this woman, but Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus began to write and he said, He that is without sin, you can cast the first stone. And you know how the men from the oldest to the youngest began to walk away. Because evidently there was some hypocrisy within their life. Jesus hates hypocrisy. I was reminded this morning as we were talking in the Sunday school lesson, thinking about the two men. There were two men that went up to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. There was, and who went away? One went away condemned, one went away and he was blessed. It's the man who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The one says, Lord, I do all this. I give tithes and I fast and I do all these things. And he went away condemned. But there was one that went away justified. He was the person that said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God hates hypocrisy. And if you want to live a successful life, it's outlined right here how you do how you do it. The first one I'd like to consider, he whose walk is blameless. To be blameless does not necessarily mean to be sinless or to be perfect. I don't think there's probably a sinless person here or a perfect person. We all have sinned. 1 John 1, 8, I should be able to quote this, but just make sure I get it right. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 
If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once again, to be blameless does not mean that we're perfect. It does not mean that we are sinless. But the question is, are you, am I, are we up to date? It kind of reminds me of the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. I'm not going to turn to that. But if you remember in that account, Jesus was teaching the disciples and and people there in the temple. And I'm amazed of how Jesus is is teaching. And all of a sudden there's this this fracas and the doors blast open. And the religious leaders, they drag in this woman taken in adultery. And they come to Jesus and they said, In the law, Moses said that we should stone this woman, but Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus began to write and he said, He that is without sin, you can cast the first stone. And you know how the men from the oldest to the youngest began to walk away. Because evidently there was some hypocrisy within their life. Jesus hates hypocrisy. I was reminded this morning as we were talking in the Sunday school lesson, thinking about the two men. There were two men that went up to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. There was, and who went away? One went away condemned, one went away and he was blessed. It's the man who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The one says, Lord, I do all this. I give tithes and I fast and I do all these things. And he went away condemned. But there was one that went away justified. He was the person that said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God hates hypocrisy. I sure hope that there's no hypocrisy here this morning. As we think about he whose walk is blameless, maybe not perfect, but up to date. Are you up to date this morning in your relationship with Jesus Christ? The second point, and I guess I really thought in this parable or this story about the woman taken in adultery, I believe the religious leaders thought they had an airtight case. It really didn't matter how Jesus responded and what he said. Because if Jesus would have said, yeah, I think you should take take this woman out and kill her. Go ahead and cast the stones. They could have said, well, according to the Roman law, we can't, we don't have the ability. It's not right for us to go and kill. You know the Jews were not to kill. But if Jesus would have answered the other way and said, no, I don't think you should take her out and kill her. They could have said, well, you're in violation of Moses' law. So I think they felt like they had an airtight case because it didn't matter how Jesus responded. They felt they had him, but obviously they did not. Second point of the message, he who does what is righteous. You know, there's a lot of people in the world today, even in conservative churches, who can talk the talk. But I ask you, where is the evidence? Where is the substance? James chapter 1, verses 1, let's see, 22 to 25. 
James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any of you be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his ways, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. We're talking about those who do what is righteous. Where's the evidence? As people observe your life, as they observe my life, is there complete agreement between our verbal profession and the life we live? We're talking about, yes, we can say things, talk is cheap, but where's the evidence? Where's the substance? Is there complete agreement between my verbal profession and the life I live? What is it that proves that you, I sure hope that there's no hypocrisy here this morning? As we think about he whose walk is blameless... Maybe not perfect, but up to date. Are you up to date this morning in your relationship with Jesus Christ? The second point, and I guess I really thought in this parable or this story about the woman taken in adultery, I believe this, the religious leaders thought they had an airtight case. It really didn't matter how Jesus responded and what he said. Because if Jesus would have said, yeah, I think you should take, take this woman out and kill her. Go ahead and cast the stones. They could have said, well, according to the Roman law, we can't, we don't have the ability. It's not right for us to go and kill. You know the Jews were not to kill. But if Jesus would have answered the other way and said, no, I don't think you should take her out and kill her. They could have said, well, you're in violation of Moses' law. So I think they felt like they had an airtight case because it didn't matter how Jesus responded. They felt they had him, but obviously they did not. Second point of the message, he who does what is righteous. You know, there's a lot of people in the world today, even in conservative churches, who can talk the talk. But I ask you, where is the evidence? Where is the substance? James chapter 1, verses 1, let's see, 22 to 25. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any of you be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself... And goeth his ways, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. We're talking about those who do what is righteous. Where's the evidence? As people observe your life, as they observe my life, is there complete agreement between our verbal profession and the life we live?
We're talking about, yes, we can say things. Talk is cheap, but where's the evidence? Where's the substance? Is there complete agreement between my verbal profession and the life I live? What is it that proves a genuine faith in God? In Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Noah, what did he do? Somebody tell me, what did Noah do that proved his faith? You're not bashful, are you? Thank you. Noah, he built an ark. Abraham, he did various things. But what did he do? Abraham proved his faith by offering up his son Isaac. Moses proved his faith by refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Doing the right thing's important. We can say, we can verbalize that, that we're Christian and that sort of thing, and that's important. But when it comes down to daily life, how does it work out? It's been a good many years ago. I'll tell a story on Jay. It was on a Saturday, and I was preparing a sermon. The title, if I remember right, the title of the sermon is What is True Faith? And so Saturday morning, and my dad called. And he called, and he said, Jay, he said, I'm having a terrible time with my lawnmower. Would you come up and help me get my lawnmower going? I told him, I said, Dad, I said, I'm working on a sermon right now. I really don't have time to help you. What do you think of that response? The title, What is True Faith? I had no time for my dad. The Holy Spirit had to work on me for a while, and later I went to up and helped my dad. But it took a while. I'm kind of a slow learner sometimes. I don't know about you. He who does what is righteous, much more than verbal, much more than a head knowledge, but he who does what is right. How about you? I submit to you that true faith is more than a verbal declaration of the tongue. I submit to you that true faith is more than an intellectual assent of the mind. I submit to you that true faith is an active and obedient faith that's motivated by the heart. Which one do you subscribe to? Number three, he who speaks the truth from his heart. In generations past, a a person's word was like a legal document, or a handshake was often the glue that held together a financial agreement. But not anymore. Truth is under attack, and you and I know that. The Bible would bear out and I would I have genuine faith in God. In Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Noah, what did he do? Somebody tell me, what did Noah do that proved his faith? You're not bashful, are you? Thank you. Noah, he built an ark. Abraham, he did various things. But what did he do? Abraham proved his faith by offering up his son Isaac. Moses proved his faith by refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
doing the right thing's important. We can say, we can verbalize that, that we're Christian and that sort of thing, and that's important. But when it comes down to daily life, how does it work out? It's been a good many years ago. I'll tell a story on Jay. It was on a Saturday, and I was preparing a sermon. The title, if I remember right, the title of the sermon is What is True Faith? And so Saturday morning, and my dad called. And he called, and he said, Jay, he said, I'm having a terrible time with my lawnmower. Would you come up and help me get my lawnmower going? I told him, I said, Dad, I said, I'm working on a sermon right now. I really don't have time to help you. What do you think of that response? The title, What is True Faith? I had no time for my dad. The Holy Spirit had to work on me for a while, and later I went to up and helped my dad. But it took a while. I'm kind of a slow learner sometimes. I don't know about you. He who does what is righteous, much more than verbal, much more than a head knowledge, but he who does what is right. How about you? I submit to you that true faith is more than a verbal declaration of the tongue. I submit to you that true faith is more than an intellectual assent of the mind. I submit to you that true faith is an active and obedient faith that's motivated by the heart. Which one do you subscribe to? Number three, he who speaks the truth from his heart. In generations past, a a person's word was like a legal document, or a handshake was often the glue that held together a financial agreement, but not anymore. Truth is under attack, and you and I know that. The Bible would bear out, and I would would suggest to you, and see if you think this is true, the Bible would bear out that our tongue is a true reflection of our master. Would you agree with that? Is your tongue a true reflection of your master? Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34b to 37. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the, of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, Jesus speaking, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And as I think of those words in verse 34, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Is it true that your tongue is a reflection of your master? 
And I like what Brother Paul Miller said about these verses. Some of you from probably know Paul Miller from Charmo High. He gave a definition of these words for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. He said, what's down in the well will come up in the bucket. I wrote that in my Bible. It's not scripture, but it's truth. What's down in the well will come up in the bucket. Is our tongue a reflection of our master? And we acknowledge, we know it is. Number four, he who has no slander on his tongue. We're thinking here in Psalm chapter 15. This comes from verse 3. He who has no slander on his tongue. Our tongues have tremendous potential for good and evil. According to scripture, the tongue is the most important I'm sorry, the most difficult member to tame. Maybe I should turn to James chapter 3. You know this is, you Bible readers, you know this is the passage on the tongue. James chapter 3, verse 2. The Bible says, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, Jump down to verses 8 to 12. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. I would suggest to you, and see if you think this is true, the Bible would bear out that our tongue is a true reflection of our master. Would you agree with that? Is your tongue a true reflection of your master? Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34b to 37. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, Jesus speaking, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And as I think of those words, therewith bless we God, even the Father, therefore curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeded blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same time, I'm sorry, same place, sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. So what is flowing from your tongue? What is flowing from my tongue? God hates slander, and I don't have this in my notes that I know of. But there's six things the Lord hates, yea, seven in our abomination unto him. And one is he that sows discord among the brethren. Um, I think that is in Proverbs 6, maybe. But anyway, what about our tongue? Is there slander? The definition for slander is this. 
the utterance of a false statement, damning, damaging a third person's character or reputation. And what does it produce? It produces prejudice and strife. God hates slander. We certainly wouldn't think of killing someone or assassinating someone, but would we ever consider to assassinate someone's character? And I think all of us, if we were honest, we would need to raise our hand and say, yes, there's times that I've slandered someone else, his character. The Bible says if we want to be perfect, we would have no slander on our tongue. We must, we must remember that each person of mankind was created in the image of God. Jesus came to give life for each one. And I couldn't help this morning. The superintendent was talking about Harry Truman, right? Uh, that was Harry S. Truman. How many of you know Harry R. Truman? I couldn't help. This is just a little side note. I won't charge you this for any extra. But Harry R. Truman, if my understanding, I don't have this in my notes, and it's a little bit fuzzy, but Harry R. Truman was a caretaker for the Spirit Lake Lodge near Mount St. Helens. And in 1980, oh boy, I shouldn't say dates, because you remember the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Anyway, it's my understanding that, that this Harry R. Truman, he was a very crusty old gentleman, and there were people in the United States government that was monitoring the seismic activity around Mount St. Helens. They said, really, everybody should vacate. They should get out of here because we believe something's going to happen. This thing's going to explode. Well, Harry R. Truman, he was a crusty old man. He had been through a lot in life, and he, he hoo-hooed and laughed and said this. Nothing that big deal about Mount St. Helens. He thought, well, you know, about always when there's an eruption, it's vertical, straight up. But obviously, Harry R. Truman didn't realize that this eruption was going to be different. There was a there was a horizontal there was a horizontal eruption, and Harry R. Truman he ended up a 150 feet underneath ash and rubble because he wouldn't take the, uh, the challenge to move out. And anyway, just a little side note of somebody who has a lot of slander on his tongue. You can look it up and check the details a little better. I'm sorry, it's a little bit fuzzy in my mind. But Harry R. Truman was a man who had slander and made fun of others for the uh, dangers that were were warned about. Fifthly, he who does his neighbor no wrong comes out of verse 3. He who does his neighbor no wrong. You have neighbors. You ever wrong your neighbor? We must first identify the word neighbor. Jesus defines that our neighbor in Luke chapter 10 verse 25 who that is. And I'm not going to turn to that for lack of time. You know the account um, of the neighbor here. The man that fell among thieves. And you know the priest and the Levite who had a head knowledge of what was required in the law. They went by and they saw the man and they didn't want to get involved. 
They didn't want to get their hands dirty. And you know what the Samaritan did? He went and he ministered to the man's need. And Jesus called you and I to do the same. It seems Jesus' focal point in telling this parable was not so much refraining from doing evil, but it was reinforcing the positive. And he said what? At the end of the passage, he said, Go and do thou likewise. He challenges you and me to be like the good Samaritan and go and do likewise. He who does his neighbor no wrong. Now, I'm going to tell you two stories right now of real life happenings that happened recently as we think about doing our neighbor no wrong. Most of you probably know that Sally and I raise chickens. And in between flocks, we often need to get somebody, if we're not doing a total clean out, we need to get somebody to come in and winrow the litter. And so there's a man that came in to winrow our litter, and at the end, when he got done, he came to me and he said, Jay, he said, I'm sorry. He said, when I was going around the corner there in the middle of your chicken house at the petition, I got into your petition, and, and I'd run my windrower through your wall. I, I'm sorry. And, and I told him, well, you know, that's not that big a deal. We'll, we'll take care of it. And about six months later, I think it was, this same man came back, and he was wind rowing in the chicken house, and he got into one of my black airs. And he, he said, Jay, he said, I'm sorry. I'll help, you, I'll help you fix it. He said, I was going around one of your, your fans, and I got into your, your dark air. And, and how do I respond to that? It happened again. <laughs> but my point is this, brothers and sisters. I'll cut a man, a man or a woman a lot of slack if they're honest with me. I have to admit, it, it bothers me if I have somebody on the farm, and it has happened, that they do something pretty bad and run off and not say a word. I'm sorry. That bothers me. But brothers and sisters, I ask you, we like people to be honest. That man was honest with me, and I was willing to cut him a lot of slack because he was honest. I make mistakes, you make mistakes, but what happens when we're the one who does something stupid? Are you willing to be honest about the things that you have done? The second story. In between flocks, I don't have a blower, and I usually blow down the, the, the fans, the dark airs, the inlets, the stoves, and I don't have a blower, so I go up to my good friend, Bruce King, who is a brother to Eugene King, and I got a blower, and so I usually do that between flocks, and anyway, I got, got Bruce's blower, and I was going from chicken house to chicken house and had this in the back of the back of my truck and got along just fine. And all of a sudden, I thought, well, you know, I've got a part that I needed in Dayton. I, need, I really need to go down there and get this part. And so I jumped in my truck, went down to poultry specialties to pick up a part. And I was going around the corner, 
and I thought I saw a flash of something. I looked in my rear view mirror and I saw Bruce King's blower sliding down the road into the ditch. Now what? I took the blower to a man who does small engine repair and I told him exactly what happened and I said fix it whatever the charge is and fix it up good and and anyway he said he'd be willing to do that is that enough I didn't feel right I felt I should go to Bruce and say Bruce this is exactly what happened your blower went off the off my tailgate I should have had my tailgate shut and I didn't and I told him I said Bruce if you want to I said you look at it and if you're not satisfied with what I've done I'll buy you a brand new blower and he was very gracious to me the challenge is are we are we going to and please don't think any better of me than you should I'm challenging you and me. We appreciate honesty. But are we going to be honest? Number six. He who casts no slur on his fellow man. Verse three. You and I would never consider murdering someone, but we've already talked about it. Would we consider assassinating someone's character and I guess I did have this in my notes I just hadn't got there yet that isn't that is in Proverbs chapter 6 verse 16 you know he that soweth discord among the brethren God hates in the church do we ever deliberately sow ill will or the tares we could turn to Matthew chapter 13 for the the sower, and we're thinking about good seed and the tares, the bad seed, and I don't think I'm going to do that this morning. You know that passage. But remember, we were in desperate need of God's grace. Are we willing to extend that to others? We think of Matthew chapter 18. You think of that account. And the two men that were forgiven, one forgiven little, one forgiven much, the man who had been forgiven little went out to, to make amends with a man who had wronged him. And he grabbed him by the throat. And he said, pay me what you owe me. He said, don't you remember? Don't you remember what you've been forgiven? We need to remember. We have stood in desperate need of God's grace. Are we going to extend that to others? I won't give you his name. Some of you probably would know him. I'm sure some of you would know him. But there was a bishop that is dead and going that served in Southeastern Conference. And the way I heard a story that that some lady called him, called him up and gave him down the country for the way that he had related to some situation. It's my understanding he did not defend himself. And several weeks later, this lady called him back and apologized for, for it. Do we have that kind of fortitude? Are we going to stand up and defend ourselves? He who casts no slur on his fellow man, that's a difficult situation. 
when somebody comes, runs us down, assassinates our character, are we going to stand up violently and, and defend ourselves or are we going to let it go? What would Jesus have us to do? Number seven, he who despises a vile man, verse seven, I mean, number seven, verse four, in whose eyes a vile man is condemned. King David often talked of the wicked and how he hated them. And you know, that sounds rather harsh. Let's look at Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22. Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22. What does David say? Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. It sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Does David actually hate the person? I don't think so. Psalm 101, verse 3. Psalm 101, verse 3. David said, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave unto me. It's seeing that King David, he recognized that close association with those whose goals were not godly would have a negative effect on him. And I would ask you and me, do you and I hate the evil around us today? It seems we are inundated with evil. Do we hate? We don't hate the person, but do we hate the evil that inundated us around us all the time? Do we hate it? Or do we feel like we, can, we want to see how close we can get to it and not get burned? It reminds me of a story, thinking about hating evil. Years ago, I would guess maybe 15, we were in Pennsylvania for a minister study week, and I'll tell you who it was. Anybody know Charles Hamilton from, okay, there is one man I believe here that does. Charles Hamilton, it's my understanding, has a store in Arkansas, Arkansas, I think, has a store and various people would come in buying things. And there was a lady that came in one day and asked him, Mr. Hamilton, do you and your family have television? He said, no, ma'am. For the same reason, we ain't got a sewer pipe coming up in the middle of our living room. Sounds to me that that was a man who hated evil. I never would have thought of something so quick. I feel like I'm really slow sometimes in responding to people. But it sounds like he had a, a response on the tip of his tongue. He was concerned about the evil of, for him and for his family. He said, no, ma'am, for the same reason we ain't got a sore pipe coming up in the middle of our living room. But we can laugh. We might think that that might be a little strange and funny, but we could have a sore pipe right in our pocket. We better be careful. How much do we hate the evil in our world? Maybe it wouldn't stain your pocket, but it could stain your soul. 
He who despises a vile man, not hating the person. But do we hate the evil that's so prevalent in our world today? Are you willing to do anything about it? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Do not be misled. Bad company does what? I guess this might be NIV. Bad company corrupts good character. That's not my word. That's God's word. We need to be careful of our association. I'd like to ask you young people, who are your, good, who are your best friends? Do you like to associate with those that are living on the edge or on a bubble or, you know, you're not quite sure whether, what, how they feel about the standards of the church? Who are your close friends? Are they leading you a little bit closer to God? Are they leading you a little, little closer to the world? Who are we associating with and why? Number eight, he who keeps his oath even when it hurts. How serious is it when we keep the vows? How serious is it that we keep the vows we have made to God and others? What does God's word say about vows? Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 to 6a. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. God expects us to be people of integrity. If a payment is due and you can't make that payment, Make arrangements so that the person that is to receive knows what is happening. And if we have agreed to meet someone at a certain time and you have a conflict, you probably should call. I thought this morning maybe we, I was going to need to call John Perfect this morning. We were coming out of Harrisonburg and we got behind a funeral procession. Lights flashing, going 35 mile an hour, and for a good ways. I didn't have to call John. We got here, I think, close. But, you know, if we've made arrangements or we have an obligation, are we willing to acknowledge when that's not going to work out? If we have agreed to meet someone at a certain time or there's a conflict, can we call and reschedule? Or if you agreed to pay a certain amount for a product, Will you follow through? It's my understanding that there was a young man who was involved in trucking some years ago, and he was uh, to deliver, and there was some beans involved, and I'm not sure. Usually the price, at I guess, were higher at the beginning of the harvest, and as it went later, the price usually dropped. And this brother uh, brokered, I guess, some beans. And he had told a farmer that he would give such and such a price. But here, this year, instead of the prices dropping, and so, so he um, 
would would be able to uh, he would make some money the price went the other way it, it came in let's say twelve dollars a bushel and maybe it went to 15 I don't remember the numbers but anyway he had he was going to take a whole trailer truck load to a farm and he was hoping to make money but he had committed himself to pay uh, or the, he would yeah, the other man would pay him a certain amount. And it's my understanding that he followed through, even though a whole trailer load of beans cost him a fair amount of money, he had committed to do that. Now, I might get myself in trouble. I don't know if you would want to go and if you could appeal to someone and say, this is what happened. I'm not saying that is a right or a wrong thing to do, but this man was a man of integrity. He was willing to honor what he said he would do, and we are to be people of integrity. Number nine, he who lends his money without usury. In the Old Testament, God desired an equality among the children of Israel. He didn't want an individual or a tribe to become super rich while the others were destitute. And that applied to lending as well. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. Exodus chapter 2, I'm sorry, Exodus 22, verse 25. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as a usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. Now, brothers and sisters, I guess I could get myself in a big pile of trouble here this morning if I would say it's never right for us to charge any interest. I don't know that I could go to Scripture and say that is true. But we know that God never wants us to take advantage of the other. When you have a deal, you're making a deal with a brother or sister, the Bible says that we are to treat other people like we want to be treated. Do we want to take advantage of somebody because we could make an extra few dollars because we want to charge exorbitant interest and we think that would make us feel better? God didn't want people taking advantage in the Old Testament, neither does he want us to take advantage of our brother today. Number 10. He who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. When the children of Israel arrived in Canaan, Moses instructed the people to appoint judges over the tribes, and they were to judge fairly. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, verses 7 and 8. Keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and the righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. And thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise, and perverted the words of the righteous. Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. The children of Israel were not to accept a bribe, because you know what happens. You know, God is concerned in 2022 
that truth would be completely undiluted. Do you believe God is concerned that truth is completely undiluted? And may God help us to be people of integrity. Help us to never accept anything that would compromise truth. In conclusion, Psalm 15 begins with two questions. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? Is that you want to abide with him? God gives answers to those questions. The formula for spiritual maturity is these that we just looked at. Number one, he whose walk is blameless. Two, he who does, not only verbalizes, but he who does what is right. Three, he who speaks the truth from his heart. Four, he who does not slander others with his tongue. Five, he who does his neighbor no wrong. Who is your neighbor? Six, he who casts no slur on his fellow man. Seven, he who despises those that are vile, not despising so much the person, but the evil that is so prevalent. Do you despise the evil around you? Number eight, he who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Number nine, he who lends his money without usury. And ten, he who does not accept a bribe to distort the truth. We have the two questions at the beginning of the chapter. The middle part of the chapter has the answers. What's the promise? Psalm 15 ends with a promise from God Almighty. He says, he who does these things will never be shaken. So I submit to you that what we've looked at this morning is God's guaranteed formula for Christian living. Ten steps to moral integrity, not my word, but God's. May God help you to be people of integrity in the world in which we live. We so desperately need it. God bless you, and shall we have a song?